Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Open Minds Radio with Alejandro Rojas. Open Minds Radio is a UFO news authority, presenting evidence and the latest news regarding the UFO phenomenon. Here's your host, Alejandro Rojas. Hola, mis amigos. It is I, Alejandro Rojas, once again. Talking UFOs with you people, UFOs and aliens today. We have a great show. Today's show, uh, we've got Jim Maroney on. And I first heard from about him from um, a buddy out there in L.A. MUFON, Steve Murillo. He usually listens. Yo, Steve. Uh, anyway, he told me, hey, this guy came to speak at uh, L.A. MUFON. He was great. You guys should have him uh, on the show and everything. And so... Coincidentally, he emailed a couple weeks ago, and I said, hey, would you like to be on the show? I've heard that uh, you have some interesting things to say, and indeed he does. He had his own abduction experience years ago, and since he feels that he has been able to uh, get a sense on why abductions are happening, why uh, we have extraterrestrial visitations, and he's going to share all of that with us here this evening. I know you're getting really excited, and that's good because it's going to be great. He's also actually an administrator in the health and safety field, so uh, he's a professional, um, and he kind of talks about what that's like, you know, being a professional and, and having these experiences and having to kind of uh, not share them with your colleagues because that's not something you want to do in a corporate environment. And especially, you know, like if you're going for a job interview, Save that type of thing till months later when you, you're secure in the job or you got the job and you're in a union because they can't get rid of you no matter what you, you could say, whatever you want. Then. So you got to be careful, job interviews, not to talk about your abduction experiences, but call us and let us know because maybe we'll have you on the show so you could share that with us. But it's long. We're going to talk to him for quite a bit. Let's move on right away. Oh, I should mention MUFON. We're going to be in MUFON this weekend, so you got to come see us 29th to 31st. We'll be there uh, Friday morning at our vendor table in Fresno, California. Go to MUFON.com for more information. Irvine, California. Did I say Fresno? Yeah. Irvine, California. I always say Fresno for some reason, but we'll be in Irvine, OC, baby. But let's get some news going because we have, you already heard him, our excellent news correspondent, Jason McClellan, is here with us to tell us all about the UFO news for the week. Jason, g- give us some, some info there, buddy. I certainly will, Alejandro. I've got your news. This is your Open Minds News Brief for Monday, July twenty fifth, 2011. Bishop Atlantis departed from the International Space Station last week and returned to Earth on Thursday morning, marking the end of NASA's space shuttle program, which made lots of people cry and go, oh. We're not going to space anymore. But NASA isn't wasting any time, and the organization is already working on a solution to launch humans back into space as soon as possible. According to the Huffington Post, a partnership was announced last Monday between NASA and Colorado-based United Launch Alliance, also known as ULA. The two will share data as NASA evaluates ULA's Atlas V rocket to determine whether or not the rocket can safely launch a manned craft into space. The Denver Post reports that if human certification is determined... An Atlas V-powered private spacecraft could be launched by mid-decade. And that's according to Ed Mango, program director of NASA's Commercial Crew Development Program. NASA already has a contract with another rocket company, and we talked about this last week, with SpaceX. 
NASA is going full steam ahead, working with several companies to ensure the exploration of the universe moves forward. But as the Denver, po- Denver Post points out, ULA is the first rocket company to join NASA in studying the capabilities and limitations of its vehicles. So they're really getting wrapped up with ULA. Whereas with SpaceX, they're providing some funding and they want to use their rockets, but they're not taking an active role in the study and development of the rockets. Yeah, it looks like they're really kind of uh, playing the field right now and trying to get an idea of what's next. Although they did say, you know, they're they're sending a, a what another rover out to Mars to where they think there there might be life, and they're flying around these asteroids. We've gotten some pictures lately of that, um, trying to show that they're still busy and up to something. But um, they're up to a lot. They've got so mm-hmm. many missions lined up, and you're right. They are certainly covering their bases and getting involved with it. Seems like absolutely everybody who's in the game now. The pictures of the asteroids are really neat too, right? Because these things are fairly decent size, and they're you know they're big. It looks like, and they've talked about landing on there and people landing on there and walking around. I mean, these things, well, a few hundred miles wide, which is fairly big. I mean, you can walk around on that, kind of be weird. But uh, it is kind of exciting. Extremely exciting. In other space-related news, Story Musgrave, who flew on six shuttle missions, believes extraterrestrial life is out there. Apollo astronaut Edgar Mitchell also believes in extraterrestrials and believes they are here on Earth. Musgrave, however, doesn't share that belief. As he explained to the Huffington Post, some astronauts have been quoted as saying they think they're aliens out there. I have seen their evidence, and for me, it's not evidence. But he goes on to explain, I feel they're everywhere out there, and they're doing interstellar, interstellar travel. We'll think differently about ourselves once we accept that. Musgrave will be the keynote speaker this week at the 42nd Annual MUFON Symposium in Irvine, California. The theme of this year's symposium is ET Contact, the Implications for Science and Society. Musgrave recently described his upcoming presentation to the Huffington Post. I'm going to tell them that, for me and my interpretation of everything, that's come my way, I cannot arrive at the idea that we have been visited, either in the past or now. MUFON is the largest UFO research organization in the world, and the 42nd Annual MUFON Symposium, as Alejandro already stated, runs from July 29th through 31st. Come see us. There's already been people voicing their frustration about having a keynote speaker who's a skeptic when it comes to UFOs. Right. And I can definitely see that point. Maybe he wasn't best for keynote. The other thing is it's right after a banquet. Mm-hmm. If people have food on the table, if he really gets skeptic and says UFOs aren't real. It's food fight. And you've got some food. Do you think you might be tempted to throw food at him? Food fight. It's food fight city. And I know he's going to talk about it, seems some Edgar Mitchell uh, type stuff, although Edgar's only heard accounts. But what about Gordon Cooper? Gordon Cooper chased UFOs in a, a jet plane. Uh, while he was in the Air Force, and saw a UFO or had film of a UFO landing in a dry lake bed. We don't know for sure what, what he's going to say, but from what from his statements, it certainly sounds like he's going to call out some of these other astronauts and yeah. kind of poo-poo their, their claims. Yeah, well, might be food fight. That'd be fun. A big UFO food fight. You're right. Even if I, I, it doesn't matter if I agree or disagree with what he's saying. If people start throwing food, I'll probably throw food too. Yeah. Just to play along. I'm going to antagonize the person sitting next to me saying, man. I'll probably just throw food saying? at you just because. You better throw food at this guy. Yes. 
Here's some pretty cool news from, from last week. The state of New Hampshire erected a historical marker last Wednesday to commemorate the Betty and Barney Hill incident that occurred in 1961, the first publicized alien abduction incident in the United States. The Hill's niece, Kathleen Martin, was instrumental in convincing the New Hampshire Division of Historical Resources to erect the historical marker. This marker is located near the Indian Head Resort, where Betty and Barney encountered a UFO. The sign on the marker reads, On the night of September 19-20-1961, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, couple Betty and Barney Hill experienced a close encounter with an unidentified flying object and two hours of lost time while driving south on Route 3 near Lincoln. They filed an official Air Force Project Blue Book report of a brightly lit cigar-shaped craft the next day, but were not public with their story until it was leaked to the Boston Traveler in 1965. This was the first widely reported UFO abduction report in the United States. And Kathleen Martin really helped with all of the, the wordage there, <laughs> and she had to go through quite a process to, to get this thing pushed forward. Mm-hmm. So it's awesome that they actually put this thing up. And uh, Betty and Barney Hill's extraterrestrial encounters is the subject of many books as well as a 1975 TV movie, The UFO Incident, starring James Earl Jones. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I was very honored that uh, she sent us the article that we put up, and we got it up first. have a wonderful article by Kathleen Martin on our website right now. Yep, on this whole, how, how this whole process came to be. Right. She's a wonderful person. I love her to death. She's going to be at MUFON, so I'm excited to see her again. Absolutely. Well, residents of a Chinese village encountered what they believed to be an extraterrestrial creature last week. The creature was spotted eating cucumbers from a garden. How dare he? The creature, uh, according to the website io9.com, uh, was spotted by a witness, and the witness explained, at first I thought it was a rabbit. Then I was shocked to see it had an alien face. But the creature turned out to be a malnourished monkey who was losing his hair. Mm-hmm. He's a strange-looking monkey. I don't know that I would mistake him for an extraterrestrial. Uh, he's cute, though, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've seen in the past monkeys mistaken for I love monkeys, extraterrestrials. Though. But, yeah, I mean, it, you know, we've seen this misidentification before. Aside from, from uh, extraterrestrials, you see it a lot with chupacabras. Yep, you even this these, week, yeah. Exactly. I think that's these, a mangy coyote. Either mangy coyotes or, or malnourished dogs or, or the, the hairless dogs. You know, and people aren't used to seeing them. So it could be a, yeah. a hairless dog that's also malnourished. It looks kind of weird. And, of course, you know, as as I've told you, the older accounts and the pictures that we see of Chupacabra, it kind of has this spiky hair thing like you got going on, not like a mangy, hairless coyote, right. which looks very different than the traditional idea. Although, you know, whatever, especially when this started, when lots of animals were being killed, and their blood was being sucked. It could be a cryptozoological thing where it's an animal we haven't discovered yet. And maybe it does look canine somehow. But also with that that depiction of the spiky hair, you know, the hairless dogs, they, they vary, but typically they have no, no hair on their bodies, but they right. have this little mohawk on the top. Kind of tuft. Yeah. So you see a lot of those pictures, and, and uh, you can identify the dog, but people aren't used to seeing them. Yeah. It's identification, just like with the monkey. Poor monkey. Yeah, little bad guy. part. I hope they let him he- keep eating It doesn't the sound like they killed him. Uh, this one lady said she was adamant about the police coming and arresting the little guy, but uh, I don't think they did. I think that uh, he didn't apparently cre- um, commit any 
crimes that animals usually don't. They steal food, and that's okay for them to do. But uh, they should have let him steal more food. The poor guy. Loose. Maybe he's someone's pet right now. Hopefully. Well, a fast-moving UFO was captured on video in Minneapolis, Minnesota, on July 11th. The bright white object in the video appears to have an irregular shape, leading some to suggest that the object is nothing more than a plastic bag blowing in the wind. But according to the Epic Times, slow-motion footage reveals it to have a distinct form and the speed of movement is too fast and directed for it to be a bag blowing in the wind. Several smaller white objects also appear in the video that could be bugs or birds, but for now, all the flying objects in the video remain unidentified. What do you think? It certainly looks a lot like a plastic bag blowing in the wind. I, w- I think that, too. It looks a lot like a plastic bag moving in the wind. I mean, uh, however, it is moving super fast. Oh, really fast. And it doesn't Absolutely. seem to be a windy day. Although, you know, as we know from doing different experiments, the wind changes at different levels. Right. I mean, a few hundred feet up, it could be going uh, really fast in one direction. And then a few hundred feet up from that, it could be moving fast in a different direction. Absolutely. You have like these currents in the air above us. You almost pulled an Elmer Fudd. Yeah. Direction. Direction. You never know what direction. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I need to watch the video again. I don't recall. I know the camera comes down at one point, mm-hmm. and you see some trees. And I, I don't think the trees were moving at all from the wind. No, I was. I didn't look like it was a windy day. And you don't hear it on on the audio, which you usually hear the wind against the mic. Mm-hmm. So it didn't seem like a windy day, and that thing was cruising. Yeah, so it's definitely uh, an interesting video. It's mm-hmm. it's not the typical, I guess there isn't really a typical, but, but um, you know, we see this with balloons, too. You know, pe- people will see a, a video that turns mm-hmm. out to be a balloon, and people will say, oh, well, see how fast it's going? Balloons can't move that fast, yeah. and, and we know they, they can. It's just we're used to seeing them sort of lazily float yeah what someone needs to do and i know there's a weather guy that listens to the show danny maybe he can do this for us but i used to have this guy in colorado who would do this for me he was part of mufon he he uh worked for a weather company and he could look up how fast the wind was at different altitudes so he would be able to determine whether or not there was any wind now if there was no wind at any altitude, moving very hard at that time, which is recorded in many places, then you would have something there. But mm-hmm. uh, you have to have someone check on that. and We need a new weather dude. And what do you think about the, the other multiple smaller white orbish things that well, you see, see those shooting could across have been the birds, video? Right? I mean, uh, or if that, you know, the wind was going that quick. But, you know, the video is so quick, mm-hmm. you know, and the camera's moving around. That I those could have been birds. Right. I mean, that that was my initial thought was birds. You not know. the main object, but right, exactly. Because the main object has a very strange, yeah, irregular, shape. like a paper bag would in the air, right, or a plastic bag, right. Real. But again, with these other these other dots, that could be bugs or birds. Mm-hmm. They're sort of going all sorts of different directions. So. Yeah. So it doesn't look like anything blowing in the wind. Yeah. But, or any True. controlled craft. But, yeah. But who knows? And Alejandro, I really like this story. This is fun. A Swedish team of ocean explorers may have discovered a UFO on the bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm. The team's sonar detected the 65-foot disc-shaped object on July 19, which is currently resting nearly 300 feet below the ocean surface in an area between Sweden and Finland. 
Sonar also detected tracks nearly 1,000 feet long that could indicate the object has moved along the ocean's bottom. The team of explorers isn't going to research the circular object, however, mm. as they are only interested in searching the ocean floors for alcoholic cargo that may have existed from ancient shipwrecks. Gathered, yeah, I mean, these are um, treasure hunters. In the past, they've gotten millions of dollars from finding treasure. Um, I think they found gold doubloons, you know, what everybody's looking for. So they got the money. They got the time. There's a gigantic round thing. It could be something worth a lot of money. It's so frustrating they don't go check. And if it's a Maybe US, they're afraid. I, I don't know. Maybe that's true. They yeah. they claim they don't have the money in their budget. That's not their mission, so they're moving on. But Yeah, what a bummer. I, because even, you know, the even if it's something um um that isn't extraterrestrial. A gigantic, what, 20 meters, so like 60 this feet thing wide? Is 65 feet wide. Yeah. That's massive. Circle. Yeah. That, I mean, that's got to be something pretty interesting, I would imagine. What if it's a 65-foot piece of gold? That would be worth $10 trillion, and they just missed out on the biggest gold doubloon ever created. In because they don't have it in their budget. Yeah. Talk well, about no imagination. You know what? If it's 60, 65 feet across and it's a big thing of gold, I don't think they could lift it up anyway. Yeah, that's true. But they would have claim to it. Many people have tried before, and that's why there's 1,000 feet of drag marks. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what's <laughs> happened. Well, Alejandro, that is it for the news. Remember to check out these stories and lots and lots more at openminds.tv, your source for UFO-related news. I'm Jason McClellan, your Open Minds news correspondent, and you've been briefed. Back to you, Alejandro. All right. Thank you, Jason. Uh, we have a lot of stories on the website that we've put up this week. As usual, we've got all of these things that we've talked about, including the videos. If you go to openminds.tv, uh, the Minnesota fast-moving possible plastic bag, possible strange-looking uh, something else, and the monkey and all that's on our front page. We also have a new story from Michael Stratt you might be interested in. Doesn't have anything to do with UFOs. Well, maybe it kind of does. This is test pilots and their secret history. So he kind of highlights three test pilots who have tested top secret craft, um, of which most of the craft, or at least much many of these uh, things that they've flown, are still top secret, and we have no idea what these things might have looked like. So that's really interesting because to think, you know, these guys were flying these things years ago and we still don't know what these things look like that they were flying. You know, of course, most likely some of these things have gotten mistaken for UFOs. So that's a very interesting story that you can check out that we just posted today. We have the Kathleen Martin story and also in uh, kind of remembrance of another UFO conference in California that took place uh, during the 70s, I wrote about a conference called Giant Rock. And some of you may know about it, some of you may not, but this was a gigantic UFO conference that was started by a guy named um, George Van Tassel. And he, you know, the, literally, he he actually worked with Hughes um, Howard Hughes, as a test pilot himself, he retired and he bought this gigantic, this land, leased it actually from BLM, 
land that had this giant rock on it. And under the rock uh, was this little room. He built a cafe next to this rock. There was an airstrip there so people could fly in. And since he was a test pilot and buddies with Howard Hughes, Howard Hughes would fly in, uh, they said, and he would come and have a piece of pie at this place. But once a year for uh, about, I think, something like 15 years, um, it was in the late 50s up into the 70s. So nearly 20 years, he held a convention at this giant rock in the middle of the desert, late June in California, and thousands of people would show up. Now, it got mostly known for the contactees that would come. In other words, people who felt they were communication communicating with aliens, such as George Van Tassel. He felt that... Uh, he was able to go under the rock and have some meditations and talk with aliens. So you have a lot of people who were contactees that came to this conference, but thousands of people would come to this thing and hear different people talk. So very interesting, and I wrote a write-up mainly about George Van Tassel himself and that he held these conferences with some pictures I was able to find, uh, such as at the uh, website for uh, the Integratron. And what is the Integratron? This, uh, you know, with the aliens that George Van Tassel was talking to, he said he was able to uh, get the plans or the blueprints for technology that they shared with him to heal people. So he started building these, this thing. It took him many years, uh, and unfortunately, he died before he finished. He passed away in the late 70s, uh, but the building still stands, and you can see pictures of that, and it looks very pretty inside, nice hard wood and I guess the acoustics are really nice because it's kind of this domed thing. Would have been nice if he finished it because it was said, uh, he said that its purpose was to rejuvenate ourselves. So to kind of take us back in time and make us younger and better and healthier. And that would have been wonderful. But he didn't finish. Hopefully one day we'll get that technology ourselves. So that's some of what you're going to find at openminds.tv. Some really interesting stories. Go check that out. But let us, without further ado, talk to our good friend, Jim Maroney, um, real nice guy. Let's get him on the line. I am very happy to have Jim Maroney on the phone. Jim, are you there? Hi, how are you, how you doing? Good. Did I say your name right, Maroney? That's correct. Absolutely. Good, it's uh, a little bit of an Irish uh, descent, actually, with Ren okay. uh, with Maroney. Kind of sounds like Italian sometimes, but it's actually Irish. Okay, cool. Yeah, for some reason, I, I thought it was Maroney for a long time, and uh, I just read it more closely recently. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you very much. I'm excited to be on your show. Yeah, and uh, let's see, you've got a couple books out now. You have one called The Extraterrestrial Answer Book. Um, right. And what year was that one written? That was just written in uh, 2009, late 2009. Okay. Really, didn't didn't get to the shelves until early 2010. Okay, so not too long ago. Mm -hmm. And then you're a part of this brand new uh, project that uh, I know uh, some of the guys in Roswell uh have been a part of, like Stanton Friedman, uh, Don Schmidt, Tom Carey. I'm not sure if Kevin Randall was in there, but I know those three were, and they were excited about this book, UFOs and Aliens, that has a bunch of um, essays from researchers, right. and, and you're in there. Yeah, yeah. 
It's a, it gives a broad spectrum of the uh, UFO phenomenon from, you know, ideas around influences on early history with humanity and uh, up to the Roswell incident. And then uh, Nick Pope, actually, from uh, the United Kingdom, did a, a nice essay in there about uh, the work that he's been doing with the uh, with the government in the UK and the releasing of UFO files and information surrounding that. And um, I've been lucky enough as well to uh, join the, them and a number of other esteemed colleagues in the, in the writing of materials and essays for this book surrounding that subject matter. And my particular uh, essay has to deal with the uh, UFO abduction encounters, uh, some stories around that, and a little bit about my experience and obviously my interpretation of uh, what these experiences mean and what we need to be uh, doing to uh, prepare for the inevitable future, which uh, seems to be approaching here relatively quickly. Great. great. Yeah, I want to get into that and the, the subject of the book and everything. And Nick Pope is also, is the right term a surf of the queen? or Because you guys are, are officially in Canada uh, under the monarchy also, right? Yeah, we, it's kind <laughs> of a, yeah, we have a very friendly relationship with the monarchy, basically, um, in the United Kingdom. We're still part of the Commonwealth. So um, they don't really ha- hold a whole lot of power, basically politically. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of figureheads essentially. But yeah, you know, Canada always has this warm place in the heart for them for the monarchy. Yeah, yeah. Well, Canada's just full of nice people. They they have good relationships with everybody, huh? Well, you know, we're small enough that uh, we we can do that. We don't have to have a big army that that draws a lot of negative attention. Right. And uh, you know, it's it, I we're really people in Canada are quite aware of the fact that we don't have a large ar- army specifically because the United States does have a large army. And, uh, you know, we've there's this really close relationship with the United States and people in the United States. You know, there's not really a whole lot of difference between both uh, people, essentially, in both countries, mm-hmm. uh, other than just how the, you know, the geopolitical uh, establishment's quite, quite a bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I, I can sense that, um, you know, as... The turmoil continues to evolve in the United States, and it, you know Canada is not immune to some internal turmoil as well. But I'm hoping that uh, you know we have enough good people in both countries to to bridge the gaps between us, and obviously propose that uh, both our countries, you know, attend the next couple of years actually in a better state than they <laughs> than they have in the last few years. Yeah. So yeah. So with you, your experiences uh, began in 1987. Now, did you really think about UFOs or extraterrestrials or anything like that prior to 1987? Not to the way I did afterwards. You know, mm-hmm. I, I did. I was always a, a curious um, in sciences. You know, I've, I've always been drawn into science. And if I think of anybody who gets drawn into science and, and uh, likes learning, and gets drawn into learning and learns to appreciate what you can gain from learning. That science, for example, presented those things that got me excited. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, at one point in time, I contemplated very, you know, uh, gradually, just, just you know, a uh, matter of fact. I kind of thought to myself, well, it's are, are UFOs really? And I had heard about them. I said, are UFOs really real? And I concluded that I thought some of them probably were. I thought that some of the reports that I'd read and from some of the people would suggest to me that, you know, maybe they were real. And then I thought that if they were real, since they were, 
that some of these reports may have to do with extraterrestrials that are just probably observing us from a distance. You know, they didn't want to really get get involved with us, but maybe they're just, you know, curiously studying us. And that's really all I thought about it. You know, I, I didn't I didn't uh, portray it in any big way. I just, and I think it was just a general interest, really, for a little bit, but nothing major, that's for sure. I hadn't yeah. really thought about it in any great extent. And then something yeah. major did occur in 87, and uh, where you found that they may have a little more interest than just uh, watching us from afar. Yeah, you know, it, the experience was so overwhelming to me that uh, it shattered all my preconceived ideas about what I thought about the UFO phenomena. And not only that, it, it really shattered the foundations that I thought I'd established over my years, you know, of, of what I thought was possible and not possible. It, it, what I call it is a consensus reality. I love that term, you know, and a consensus reality is what we all think reality should be. And it's a general consensus of this reality. Well, that, that reality was shattered for me. And I, I, it took me some time, I have to say, you know, to get my feet back on the ground and, and um, deal with the experience the way I, it should be dealt with in order for it to have a positive influence on my life and make sure that you know, it wasn't going to be a negative influence on it. But it also created so many challenges about things I didn't understand. And uh, it put me on a journey and on a path to try and discover what the abduction phenomena really is and, and uh, what's behind it and um, so that in some way I can understand it better. Mm-hmm. So can you explain to us uh, what had happened? Well, it turns out um, in 1987, um, this experience, during this part of this experience, I began to realize that I'd had previous contact with these beings, uh, but I had no conscious memory of it. And that's a real shock, you know, when you when you, <laughs> when you suddenly realize there are parts of your life that actually you're not even aware of at some point mm-hmm. in time. Kind of sounds spooky, but that is ultimately the reality of part of this experience. But back in 1987, what these beings did is they carefully orchestrated a contact experience for me, and they ensured that parts of my memory would remain intact and I would be able to recall uh, certain components of this experience completely lucidly. I wasn't asleep through any of this process or anything else. And um, the uh, other parts of the experience, they wanted to make sure or tried to ensure that I didn't remember them and they didn't feel that it was in my best interest to, to remember them. And, but, of course, you know, being as curious of a guy I was, I really wanted to make sure that I tried to find out a little bit more about what happened uh, on this particular experience. And um, I'll go into the experience here. The experience really occurred in 1987 off uh, in a truck stop. And um, the um, I had this ominous feeling, actually, when I was uh, pulling into the truck stop. I didn't feel very at ease at all. In fact, there was just something that was nagging me. I wasn't sure what it was. Um, and I, when I pulled into this truck stop, I really wanted to be near people. I didn't want to. It was late in the evening. I wasn't going to find another place to, to hole up in a hotel or anything like Were that. Were you on a but, long trip or, or a long drive? Yeah, I was on a, I was on a very long drive. I'd uh, driven 11 hours straight, mm, and wow. uh, I was exhausted. It was just you know after midnight, uh, maybe around 1 o'clock in the morning when I pulled into this place. It was, a, again, a truck stop off a, off a major trucking route in Canada. It's off called Highway 1, which links both eastern and western Canada. And I pulled into this truck stop, you know, and I looked around, and I thought to myself, well, where am I going to sleep here? You know, I got, I'm driving a little Honda Civic. You know, and I I pull into this truck stop. I pull over to the side, 
And I, I wanted people from the restaurant to be able to see me or, or me see them. And I just felt it would be a little bit safer. I didn't want to go into the far parking lot off into a dark area where nobody was going to see me. Um, I parked my car there. I pulled over to the – I got out. I was just by myself. I went into the passenger side because I was driving a stick shift um, little Honda Civic. So with the pedals and everything else in the way, you know, that's just not very comfortable mm-hmm. to, to lie back in. Yeah. So I, I moved some of the gear around in the car, pushed the back seat down, or pushed the, the passenger seat down, and uh, so I could stretch out a little bit more, grab the blanket, and uh, set myself into the car, and put the blanket uh, over me, and uh, tried to get a little bit of shut-eye. But unfortunately, where I parked, there were still a lot of vehicles coming in. Uh, it was a truck stop, after all. And truckers don't necessarily all pull off at uh, midnight. You know, they, mm-hmm. they drive all night long as well. And uh, I found that a lot of these trucks were actually pulling in through the night. So... I I couldn't get any sleep. You know, every minute I'd try to doze off, another truck would come in and wake me up. Um, so or just prevent me from getting any sleep because I really never got any sleep. Then um, the uh, I was there when another truck was coming in, and I thought, Good God, what is this guy doing? And um, I could uh, his lights were so bright. I'm thinking now that he's pulling right up to the front of my car, and I'm thinking, What is this guy doing? Now I'm, I was actually getting angry. Mm-hmm. Uh, thinking that what a what a jerk you know he's pulling way too close to my car, and uh, all of a sudden uh, I noticed that the lights were actually moving over top of my vehicle, and I hadn't opened my eyes yet because the light was just so intense in this vehicle, and as the lights moved over top of the vehicle, obviously I realized it wasn't a truck. I assumed it was some kind of craft. Something was moving over top of the vehicle. At the same time, this all happened very very rapidly. Um, I became paralyzed. I wasn't able to move. Um, you know, I could barely breathe. Essentially, it felt like that, and uh, I had. Uh, it's just extremely uncomfortable, and this fear started to to emanate or, or become a part of this experience as well. And I think this fear may have originated from this paralysis. I'm not sure how that all happened, but in any case, the uh, I was actually taken on board this vessel. And um, I, the the paralysis in accompanying with that, too, as well, I should mention that there was a, a strong electromagnetic field underneath this craft because I could actually feel the hairs on my arm. I came out a hairy guy. And I could feel the hairs on my arm actually rise. And I knew that whatever this craft is, you know, it's I doubt very much it's from here. It's completely silent. It didn't hear any any noise, any engine noise. In fact, the air... I would describe it as dead air. There wasn't any echo into it. If I made a snapping sound on my finger, if I could have moved my fingers, I wouldn't have anticipated there would have been any sound. I mean, it was just the air completely went dead. It was the quietest, quietest air I'd ever ever experienced. Um, the next minute, I'm being drawn through the car, um, and uh, I find myself standing in front of um, four non-human beings. And uh, I staggered to my left, and I put my hand down, and I looked really briefly, and and there was my car. So somehow they pulled me through the windshield or through the front of the car, and they and set me standing essentially in front of them in in an amphitheater kind of room. It was a large room, um, and um, these beings were obviously non-human. They were about three and a half feet tall, typically the large heads that a lot of people report. But they had, I would call them like quite pointy chins. Their chins came down quite a bit. 
I almost passed their neck actually, like where your where your neck is a little bit. So it was they're quite pointy, and they had very very thin necks, and they also had obviously these very large heads. But all their eyes were blue. You know, they didn't have any black pupils like a lot of other people report them to have. Um, they had blue pupils, um, so they weren't weren't compound eyes or anything like this. They had no hair. They didn't have any ears. They had only slight noses that I could make out, and their mouths were very, very slight as well. And uh, the very, obviously, very large eyes, probably eyes about four times the size of ours, if not five times the size of ours. Just immense. And uh, I was, uh, I got immediately, (laughs) not only was I a little bit disorientated, I was really scared. Uh, part of being pulled on board this ship, it really hurt. I don't know. Under, I don't understand mm. how, why the pain was there or anything else. But it f- would feel like maybe I got the bends or something like that. I mean, I, it felt like my body was being torn apart. Wow. So for a brief period of time, I thought I was, I was dying. I was going to be killed. And then the next thing I know, there's no pain, and I'm staggering, you know, in front of these, in front of these beings. And so I. Uh, thought to myself, look, i got to defend myself in some way, and I don't want them doing anything that's going to hurt me. And I'm not confident that they know how not to hurt me. So the first thing I do is become quite indignant, you know, and I'm telling them they don't have a right to do this. What do they think they're doing? You know, they they can't just take people without any reason. You know, they shouldn't be able to talk. You know, they just don't have a right to do this is really what I was trying to be uh, in, <laughs> insistent on. And... Um, Part of this, you know, when I look back on it, it was really me just trying to protect myself, you know, and I, and obviously I was scared. I also didn't want to do anything that was going to be reckless. I didn't want to do anything that was going to jeopardize me getting back and and uh, getting back to my car and, and, and letting them, you know, having them let me go. And um, so it's it's, and this all happens very, very fast. So it's quite a jumble of thoughts that you're trying to work through. So in the meantime, um, one of these beings, as I'm getting more angry with these guys, and they weren't making any noises, they didn't talk at all at first, and uh, I said to them, you know, you could have used the door, was one of the statements that I made. And I I was alluding to the fact that I thought it hurt being pulled through the car. I thought that, hey, you know what, just open up the bloody door, and then you could pull me out that way if you wanted to. You don't have to hurt me in that way. And uh, one of the beings steps forward, and with complete command of the English language, said very clearly, um, what do you need doors for? And I was so dumbstruck by the question because I didn't know how to answer it. And I thought to myself briefly, I said, how in the hell am I going to talk to these guys when we don't even have doors in common? And this Um, was a verbal uh, statement that this being made. Yeah, completely. And obviously Mm -hmm. it would suggest that they've had long-term contact with human beings mm-hmm. um i i lost it in the moment you know but I, I think i thought about it briefly that geez how the heck did they learn english you know they must they must have found a way to learn english they must have known about us for some period of time Certainly, what was its voice like it was uh, it was and i'm just trying to describe it um it was a curiosity in the voice but Mm-hmm. The, the inflection was quite pragmatic. It was just a very direct question. There wasn't a lot of emotion tied into it. It mm-hmm. was just, you know, what do you need doors for? What about and like the pitch of the? Did it sound like an adult or a, a child or was yeah. it high pitch or? It was. I would say it just sounded human. 
Huh. It sounded more human. You know, it, it wasn't wow. high pitched or low pitched or anything like that. It would sound pretty, I'd say, like an average voice. Mm-hmm. I didn't really recall discerning exactly what it, what it sounded like. There wasn't any dramatic difference. Let me put mm-hmm. it that way. Mm-hmm. That would have, that would have thought it was out of place. So yeah, but I, there wasn't any accent to it. I mean, even in North America, you know, we even though we vast majority of the population speaks English. We've got all different kinds of accents from California to Arizona to uh, Canada, to, and then Canada has several different accents in it. We have the East Coast uh, accents. We have, you know, the the Southern United States. They have different accents. And, and in this, the accent, I didn't detect any accent for me. So whatever, however they were questioning it, you know, and whatever words they were using, I just didn't perceive an accent to it. This was. Um, Obviously, you know, we can go off in another direction with with why that would be, but um, the I, I continued to get angry, and then finally another being stepped forward, and instantaneously I was completely calm. In the snap of your finger, I was I went from a raging lunatic to a completely calm, docile person. So what they have this the ability to do is to project. Um, some means of controlling your emotions and and controlling the individual that's with them. And the way I, I describe it is, think of it as getting on stage with a hypnotist, you know, and and having a hypnotist hypnotize you and then su- give you suggestions and you just follow them or you do things. But this type of hypnosis or this type of suggestion was much more powerful than you would normally be exposed to in a typ- typical hypnotist uh, entertainment situation. So. Um, and anyway, this this other being stepped forward and didn't say anything to me, and um, boom, I was completely calm. And I'm not sure then if they had worded it or it's just the idea came up, but, but it was like, follow me. And I went, okay. You know, I didn't put up any resistance. I didn't start right. yelling at them anymore. It was like the, you know, it's like someone saying, well, let's go for a Sunday walk. Okay, that seems reasonable. And it, it sounds unusual that that a person being in that situation would be so compliant, but it just seemed the most natural thing in the world. And again, it has to do with with uh, the consciousness that that these beings actually possess. Well, we uh, walked down some hallways, and as we were walking through this craft, I tried to get an idea of how big the craft was. I knew something had come over top of the car, but I never got an idea as to how big this actual craft was. In the meantime, I thought maybe briefly that, hey, somebody back in that place, in that restaurant, must have seen something. So um, as I'm walking through the craft, I'm noticing that the beings in front of me are, you know, about three and a half feet tall. And um, I'm looking at their heads and I realize, you know, they're, bald as, you know, they're as bald as billiards. You know, they, but there's a little bit of a bilobed um, formation to their heads. And uh, so I wasn't sure whether or not there was a cranial structure. And I was trying to assess, you know, what kind of structure they actually were. But what really amazed me, what kind of struck me, was the fact that their necks were so small compared to the size of their heads. And I thought, good God, I said, you know, it's as if if you, you know, gave one a shot in the side of the head, it would probably snap its neck. That's kind of like what I thought. I thought they looked extremely fragile. Yet, um, um, I, I also assumed that maybe their internal structures were different than human beings. You know, I just a human structure could not be like that. I can assure you. You know, there's just no way. Not with so either two things: either their internal structure was dramatically different than ours, 
and the structure to support the head was different, or they worked within a different gravitational field than we did. And I have to think that I didn't see anything, that the gravitational field I was in, I didn't notice any changes to it, so I didn't think we were, either it was artificially generated or whether we were still in, you know, uh, in Earth's orbit or not. I, I have no idea. I, in fact, I tried to look out windows, and I couldn't see any windows. There wasn't any windows. What were the walls the like? They were the um, essentially kind of like a beige color. Hmm. And there was a rib structure to them. In other words, every like a supporting rib structure to it. So about every 10 feet, there would be a, a slight um, rib structure that would be. And, and, the, and the, so the, the walls weren't completely straight on, the, on both sides. They were somewhat concave. And the uh, lighting was both on the floor and on the ceiling, which had an unusual way of diffusing around this um, the concave walls, essentially. So it was really brightly lit. Like, it was a very brightly lit place, and it wasn't cramped at all. It was, uh, these halls were huge. I mean, there were they were. Uh, I think I, I was walking down one hallway. It must have been at least thirty feet long, and I started and and wide. I'm, I'm guessing you know. 12 feet wide or 10 feet wide, mm. uh, they're were, they were really wide. And um, I, I thought to myself for a minute, and the ceilings were quite high too, they're about eight foot ceilings. And that's when it struck me because I realized, I said, holy smokes. I said, you know, these beings are way too small. They're three and a half feet tall. I said, here I am walking quite comfortably. And the designers of this ship did not design this ship specifically for the purpose and habitation for these beings that were around me. They built it to handle beings of my size. And so this suggested two conclusions. One, this ship was specifically you know, uh, built to deal with human beings. Or two, there were other beings on the ship where at least my size or bigger. I, I concluded at that time that the ship was probably designed with the intent of dealing with human beings on a large scale. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty amazing. You know, when you're walking through this thing, and and that starts to sink in. I it's it's ominous, you know. It was just um, mind blowing. When um, we went to a, a little um, booth, I got into a booth. They just suggested, you know, Jim, you know, slide into this booth. I get into this booth and I get hit with this light, this blast of light. Not comfortable. It was really uncomfortable. But I'm I, I they never told me what it was. Um, I'm guessing it was some kind of decontamination chamber or something. Then I. I step out of the booth. I don't look any different. I got all my clothes on. Everything else, everything's fine. You know, they asked me to go to another room and change into some other clothes, and uh, I did. You know, just something that they suggested. Um, the most natural thing in the world. There was actually a door. I could actually go in. They didn't come in with me. They left me there by myself. But I believe they still exhibited some control over me. And uh, when I was done, I said, "Okay." Door opens up. I walk out. The two beings are there. And they walked me to uh, a number of uh, rooms. First room they walked me to was a, a fairly large room. Actually, it's about I would say it's about two stories high uh, in the interior of this room with lots of equipment. And they asked me to lie down on a on a, a table, and uh, I underwent some uh, medical procedures on this table, which included a device that was inserted through my side, and um, it never left any scar. Um, you know, but I completely recall the pain and the, uh, the discomfort of something being pushed into my side, and it—I could actually feel it go into the uh, into my abdomen, and so it actually passed through the the skin tissue. And it took some pressure to do that, 
uh, and uh, but it went into uh, my abdomen, did something, and then pulled back out. And so, um, you know, I wasn't sure what it was doing, and it wasn't explained to me what it was doing either, or what they were trying to do with me. In the meantime, I should convey to you that the way I was trying to converse with them, I, I actually said, "Can I help you?" Now, it may sound like an odd question, but I'll give you the, the frame of mind that I was in at the time. I realized that I was in a position that I couldn't control, that these beings were way more powerful than me, and that I, if I was going to survive whatever was going to happen, I needed to do something. When I played sports, I wasn't always the biggest guy on the field, and I always began to realize that there are ways to outsmart your opponent, right? There's ways mm-hmm. to you can use your intelligence and find your way to, to dominate your opponent or to just outsmart them, you know, so you can win the game or whatever. In this case, you know, it, was, it wasn't a whole lot different than that. I realized that, look, you know, these guys are just bigger and bigger, more powerful than you. Maybe not bigger in size, but they're just more powerful than you. They're holding all the cards. So what you need to do is you need to find a way to communicate with them, number one. Maybe I'm not looking at to outsmart them. I just try and communicate with them. Find out what they want, and and maybe you can negotiate getting you know out of here. You know, find a way to get out of here. So um, I remember asking them, you know, continually, you know, oh, can I help? Can I help you? You know, what what are you after? And um, but they were very task orientated. You know, they didn't engage in a lot of conversation with me at all. In fact, they avoided it to, for the most part. Um, even I remember one situation where. Um, I know it just popped into my head right now where uh, they finished one particular experiment that hurt really quite quite badly. And I, I got up, and as we were walking to the door, I asked them, is there anything I can do to help you? The question itself just staggered both of these beings. I felt like I could have knocked them over with a feather. I mean, they were completely dumbfounded by my sincerity of the question that I had given them. And I suggest that now that what had happened is that when they'd done this same procedure with other people, it's the last expe- you know, response they would have ever expected from anybody. And um, and that you know that that just struck me uh, how that really happened that way. When we when I went into um, I think one of the final rooms that I went into, it was uh, and this is the, the ones that I remember anyway. One, one of the final ones, but um, I I was was exposed to this one room that had about 70 beds in it. And on these 70 beds, about 30 of them were full of people. And the other 30 were vacant. And uh, there could have been more beds than that, to be honest with you. You know, I I only had a a glimpse of it. Um, And I remember the feeling that I don't want to be seeing this. This is really what I said to myself. And the feeling that I had when I was on board the ship was one thing. But the, the, the sense... You know, and I, you would think that well, seeing another human being would be something that would be good, and something that would really appeal to you. But in this situation, no, it wasn't that case at all. When I saw these people that were helpless, lying on these tables, not saying anything, they didn't, uh, they weren't struggling or anything else. They all seemed to be sleeping or in some kind of coma, and these alien beings were running in between them, moving very, very fast and jerky movements. You know, like they, they're ring, very rushed about it. I, I remember thinking to myself, oh, I just don't want to be seeing this, you know. And, and God knows what I would have felt like if, if one of them 
cried out for help or something like that. Mm-hmm. That would have been just devastating to me. So you were so, pretty much afraid of what they might be doing to those people. Uh, n- actually, you know what? What really bothered me was the fact that it was already happening and that we didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. You know, this was back in '87. I'm thinking, my God, you know, if they can do this, if they can do this without us knowing, I mean, what else don't I know? You know, yeah. how much of this do I not know what's going on? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other part of it came back to maybe I'm not going to get out of here. You know, if maybe mm-hmm. I'm not going to get out of here with the secret. Uh, maybe they don't want us to know. You know, I, I was really quite worried. Those were all the things that flashed into my mind when I when I saw that. Uh, we went through another set of medical experiments that I ended up passing out because there were just, I think, the intensity of the experience itself or, or the difficulty of the medical experiment. And I, I wouldn't call it an experiment. I, I don't think that's an appropriate definition for it, actually. It, this was a medical procedure that was designed and intended to change something. And so that's what they were working on. So they didn't explain to me what that procedure, why they were doing it, but that's just my assumption on it. So after the medical procedure, um, I'd passed out and I was now coming to, and I was in a room, and it was still a large room. Um, I was coming to, and uh, I was on this bed, and I remember just uh, this being pulling away from me as my eyes began to focus. It's the oddest sensation because my eyes were already open, and I was just coming to. So if anybody's been out there listening that's ever had a concussion, it's the oddest thing if your eyes are open and suddenly, you know, your your brain starts to function again as it starts to refocus. And it just seems that uh, there's these little pinholes and, it's you know, everything kind of widens out again and then you can see quite clearly. So it's almost like coming through a tunnel. So as I'm as I'm regaining consciousness, I look at the foot of my bed and now for the very first time, I see these two beings they're dressed in completely black outfits. This was different than the other beings that I'd seen, which were dressed in either white outfits or a beige brown outfit. And uh, they were dressed in these jet black, I mean, clear, clear black, almost looked like a shiny leather kind of black outfit. But these beings, even though the faces were about the same, you know, the, the general structure was the same to all the other beings, these beings were almost... I'd say 10 feet tall, maybe wow. maybe larger. I never in my entire life had seen a being on two legs standing that tall, ever, ever. So I'm guessing they're at least 10 feet tall, maybe maybe 11 feet tall. So, but they were skinny. You know, they were they were quite skinny, but they were very tall, pretty imposing. I didn't have any shackles on me. I wasn't restrained in the bed as I was coming to, and I believe that they were there for the protection of the other beings around them. And um, there was another uh, other uh, alien being to my right, and uh, she had a feminine quality to, uh, to her. She didn't have any feminine attributes, no breasts, you know. And her 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 um, again her body composite was anatomically similar to all the other ones. So I I don't know why I had this idea that she had this feminine aura, but that was my sense about her. So she stepped forward and she said in a very um, unemotional voice, she said, then there was a question, we don't understand your anger. Well, for a second this confused me because at that very moment I wasn't angry. I'm still trying to get a sense of where I am and, and what's going on around me. And... Um, I remember pausing for a second. I'm thinking, what? And then she stepped forward again, being more insistent. 
And she said, we don't understand your anger. And I'm thinking to myself, what? What? And I'm thinking, well, I'm not angry right now, but you know what? I sure was angry when I got on board this craft. Right. And I think maybe that's what they're angry. Oh, now I'm still having this sense that I need to communicate with them in some way. And they really hadn't extended that olive leaf to me at this point. And I'm thinking, I've got to do something, you know. And I thought to myself, what am I? I, I really said, look, I'm sorry, is what I wanted to say. I wasn't expecting it to hurt. So let's start over again. Like, let's figure out what you guys want, and and I'll explain to you what I need. This is kind of like how I wanted to go with this whole whole conversation. But all I got out was, well, I'm sorry. And I couldn't get the rest of it out. And I remember turning my head to my left, because this being was on my right-hand side, and I was still lying down. And I remember turning my head to my left, trying not to cry. And I'm thinking, you know, be strong. Like, don't don't cry. Got to get this, you know, get through this thing. I didn't want to show any weakness to them at all. But after just a fr- you know, another two two seconds, all of a sudden, you know, I just broke down crying. And there was this tremendous love and compassion that was coming from this being that encouraged this, you know. And I grabbed, I, I, I came off the table and I, I grabbed and I hugged this being. And I know she looks different than human beings, but there's this intense compassion and love. And she, uh, I remember her whispering to me and saying this also in English. She said to me, it's okay to cry. The strong ones cry. Mm. And she was and, one of the shorter beings? Yep. Yeah, she was about, uh, well, she was actually a little bit taller than some of the other ones. Again, I think she's about four foot ten, maybe five one or somewhere in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, maybe five feet or just just less than five feet. So, um, you know, this is the the entire experience and the stress of being on the ship and and all of that stuff started to just you know fade away or or come out of me. I would say, you know, it just started. It was like a huge relief that that started pouring out of me. And then when I started getting my composure, you know, because now I felt safe. You know, I, I actually felt safe in that moment. And um, as I got my composure, it was just this, it's a hard feeling to actually describe. You know, from one minute you think you're going to die and you you have no idea whether you're going to come out of this alive or not. And actually you're getting convinced that you're not going to make it out of here. And then the next instant you feel completely safe, you know, and and taken care of. And uh, it's just the relief of that happening in in such a quick way in succession was just very difficult to manage emotionally. So as I spoke to her, there was a sense that she knew me um, for a long time and that we had known each other for, for quite some time. And um, and I don't remember all everything we spoke about. Um, I know we spoke at length, um, you know, and she told me about certain things and stuff like this, but I, I, I can't even remember to this day exactly what that was. But I do know that my next memory was uh, being in that amphitheater again with all these beings that I had originally seen and some other ones I hadn't. Uh, There are, again, different sizes and some of them had different outfits. And uh, this being that was with me, she she looked at me and I looked at her and with complete sincerity, she said to me, she says, I wish I could stand beside you to face the things you're going to have to face. And I just shrugged my shoulders and I said, look, that's okay. I understand. You know, you can't come to my world. 
I wouldn't expect you to. And I got to be, you know, I got to find a way to stand on my own two feet. So I said, it's fine. It's, it's okay. Don't worry about it. And um, as I, you know, the feeling in, in this whole place was one of uh, joy. It was one of sadness. It was an enormous, immense moment for them and for me. But I really sense it was probably more of an enormous moment for them. Um, mm-hmm. It was as if a very special thing had happened and uh, an incredible thing had happened. So as I walked towards the car and I realized I had to go, there's a sense that I, I got to get back to Earth. Now, you know, I, I got to get back to my home is really what I thought. And uh, as we walked to the car, I remember thinking, holy hell, you know, they're going to push me through the windshield again. And I have no intention of getting hurt again. And I remember jumping to the front door and I grabbed hold of it. And I said, that's okay. I said, you know, I'll, I'll get myself in. You know, and I was relieved at the time. But again, the, the, being, the other being that was there just looked at me and smiled. And, um, you know, I, I got myself in, put my blanket around me. They closed the door. And uh, and then I was dropped back off into this uh, into the parking lot, the same location where I had been previously. And um, and then the craft moved away. Um, the uh, the There was a vehicle that was actually parked behind me as I as I got out of the vehicle and I was nervous, you know, I looked around in the, in the, in the sky. And so were you only... conscious when they, when they put the car back? Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So then my conscious memories, my full conscious memories, which I was allowed to remember. And mm-hmm. I, obviously I'm not telling you the whole story about what actually happened yeah. in this experience, but, uh, the full conscious memories included me being taken on board the craft, being, being coming back down in the craft and a brief experience of hearing the echo of myself screaming, um, mm. which was pretty unusual. But all these memories were selected for a very, very particular reason. And it became evident that, you know, they wanted me to know that they existed. They wanted me to know that they exist in my life like they do for millions and millions of other people and that they are engaged in some form now of, I, I believe it's an intervention, would be best described um, and uh, they're, they're, they do have this intervention going on, but their desire is is to have a relationship with humanity, um, and that's not just with me. You know, it's it's with everybody. I I don't feel special, you know, in any way after this experience. I really don't. I mean, I, I understand uh, that it's a different experience than other people have had in their lives, but I don't feel special in that sense. I just feel it's just an experience that has enlightened me to. Um, understand that I, I'll never probably understand all the mysteries of this world, but that the bigger point is, is that humanity is approaching a very, very difficult time in its evolutionary process, and that these beings are here trying to help us. They're struggling with that. We're struggling with it, trying to figure out what they're doing and what kind of relationship they want with us, and and how are we going to contend with what's going to be happening in the very near future? Mm-hmm. I think that these are all phenomenally huge questions for not just the survival of humanity, but maybe the survival of countless other species on this planet. Um, But there's an an enormous uh, struggle going on right now that I think a lot of people have have picked up on and have decided that this is something that's important, that we really need to put some resources towards to have a better understanding about it. When you got out of the car, did you kind of look around and like you had uh, thought about before suspecting... um, someone had seen you or seen this experience? 
you know, you know, I thought that maybe there'd be people running around in the parking lot, you know, yeah. and there'd be chaos and stuff like that. And I get out, and it's a quiet night, and the only sound I heard was the combination of the mosquitoes buzzing around my head, and the uh, and the and this transport truck that had parked itself right behind my vehicle, which was not the park, which was not an allocated parking stall, which prevented anybody from the. Um, a restaurant from seeing what was going to happen in this parking lot. Like if my car disappeared, uh-huh. they weren't going to see it. Uh-huh. Um, I've also come to understand that, you know, they, they have this ability to cloak themselves in ways, and we have this on video footage as well, that, you know, they, they can find ways to cloak themselves in a way that would allow them to do things without us actually visually being able to see them. So, um, you know, I, I think they influenced the driver of this cab who may not have any recollection of why he did it or what he did, but he just influenced this driver, suggested that he park his rig in this location and then take a few, maybe go to sleep, I don't know. Um, and um, that's what they did. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's, it was carefully planned. It was well yeah. thought out on their part. You know, it wasn't just by an accident type of thing. This was, this was something that had every component of a very carefully structured, well thought out plan that was detailed, orientated, and uh, and well executed, actually. So then you have to go back to your normal life. Uh, you're an administrator uh, in the health yeah. industry or in the in the in a health and safety field. Yeah, you know we uh, yes, I'm an executive director currently uh, for a health and safety association that uh, takes into a part about sixty two thousand workers. Uh, so it's a large organization, and we have a large responsibility. I also work with the provincial governments up here. So it's, I work with government and in, in, in industry as well. So what does this mean for me? Well, back in 1987, I, I wasn't going to go public with this at all. I knew that I didn't have a UFO in my hand or you know a space alien gun that I could show anybody to prove to them that this experience was true or that this experience was real. I do have some other ideas about how we could go about proving it, but I'll leave that for maybe another discussion. But, but the point is, is that I really knew that I would sound absolutely uh, borderline psychotic if I was to tell anybody about this experience. And this is what I concluded. So I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to try and, and deal with this on my own without telling anybody. Well, that lasted about a week. <laughs> you know, I, I finally had to tell my sister, and I remember trying to talk to her about it. I remember breaking down and crying over just a little bit because it's just just so right. earth-shattering to me. But you know, once I, once I got my composure, I really decided that maybe what I'm going to do is try and understand this phenomenon the best way that I can, try and understand what's happening to all of us and how it's occurring in our society, learn as much as I can. Uh, in the meantime, you know, not talk, not go public about my experience, not talk about it to anybody and just keep it as a very private experience. And this went on for years and years. You know, I got married, raised two children. Um, you know, we were even careful about telling the children about the UFO phenomenon. You know, I think kids have enough grow- enough challenges in their life growing yeah. up than having their parents come in and say, oh, guess what? You know, aliens are real and right. they do. That's just too much for a five or six, seven-year-old. So we didn't tell the kids until they were 18 and 19. You know, I sat mm-hmm. them down and, and both myself and my wife actually talked to them about it because Later on, and this is a complex story, later on, you know, my wife had a very brief encounter uh, with myself there. So 
you know, these beings are very conscious, I believe, of our of our social relationships with each other, and they hold a lot of importance to those relationships, and they don't really want to upset our upset the people they're contacting with in such a way that these people become no longer, you know, effective members of society. Look at it that way. In other words, they don't mm-hmm. go crazy. So, uh, but it's a struggle. I mean, it's it's not an easy experience. And uh, but at some point in time, obviously, I decided, hey, you know what? Maybe I'm going to write a book about this. And I, I was driven to write the book, not for my own personal gain, because I never wanted this to be about me. I wanted this to be about all of us and how we can learn from this and how we should be addressing this phenomenon. And also, I was driven to it because I felt that there was a lot of misinformation that was out there. And there, you know, even people who may have encountered an abduct or abduction experiences are very reluctant, you know, now to go public because we've had some pretty serious accusations being laid against some people who have these encounter experiences. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they've never been held in a good light, you know, and some of you wonder, gee whiz, you know, maybe these people need to get their medication in order, you know, and, right. and they've been really portrayed in that way. Uh, and I think that um, maybe my role now, at least part of my role, is saying, look, you know what, you can have a professional career, you can actually have a marriage these days. My God, you know, we've been married over 20 years. And you can have a, a sustainable relationship with your kids and your family and still have these experiences. Uh, what about... I think, mm-hmm. yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, what would you say to those people? Because there are quite a few, um, you know, we had... Well, I actually did an interview many years ago with Daryl Sims, but I just put it on the show not too long ago. Uh, but the people who are very upset about uh, being an abductee and and uh, having these experiences and not feeling betrayed yeah. or lied to and uh, that it's a much more ominous type of thing going on. Uh, I'm sure you've had people come to you about that. Yep. Yeah. You know, and here's the way I understand the phenomena to be. From my experience, it is not these beings' intention to be intrusive or to be hurtful in any way. But we're dealing with a crisis in which humanity may not survive. And it's a crisis of humanity's doing, not these aliens. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if it's like going to the dentist and someone, I got into a discussion with somebody and they said, well, if they hurt you, they're bad. I said, well, that's a good philosophy, except it doesn't work when I go to the dentist. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. should I kill my dentist? Because, you know, should I hate my dentist or, or, or want to hurt my dentist because he hurts me? No. But I understand why I'm going to the dentist. If you're going to an emergency room and doctors, it's the same thing. Um, I, in this situation, you know, it's more complex, but I think we have to be able to, to um, look at it in a different light. When we saw the work that had been done by John E. Mack from the Harvard psychiatrist, this is a Harvard professor psychiatrist that did some absolute groundbreaking research in this area. And his conclusion is, and from the work that he did, is completely consistent with my experience, which would suggest that, well, at least a good portion of the people he was dealing with that he would conclude are sane ordinary people just going through extraordinary experiences have been able to find a way to actually deal with these experiences in a in a reasonable way. Mm-hmm. The other part of it is, though, and I, I, I'm not going to dismiss people who are having negative experiences altogether, sometimes psychiatrists and psychologists have done more harm than good in this field. You know, these beings have actually created memory screens to protect individuals. And what psychologists and some psychologists have done says, well, you know what? 
in order for me to help you, let's find out what's going on. By the first thing I'm going to do is remove these memory screens, which, oh, by the way, were actually put there intentionally to protect you. But I'm going to remove them and then see what happens and see what we find out. You know, and, and when you do that, you may expose memories that are going to be very destructive to the individual and, and very hurtful. And that may not be in the best interest of that individual's both psychological health and spiritual health. Yeah, I've heard of a a person who, uh, you know, did a regression, um, was able to remember stuff he couldn't before, and remembered a conversation with the beings that, that had abducted him. And he said, I'm going to remember this. I'm going to make sure I remember this. And they're like, uh, no, we're going to make it so you don't. And he's like, I'm going to. And they're like, well, why? Why? <laughs> because we're going to cover up some bad stuff so, you know, for your benefit. Yes. You know, and this is not actually a new phenomenon. Back in 1962, in the Betty and Barney Hill case, yeah, the being actually talked to Betty and said, "Okay, I want you to forget it." And Betty was insistent. Oh, I'm oh, going yeah. to remember this. Yeah. And and the being's response was, "Well," and he kind of laughed. And he says, "Well, I, I hope you don't." Mm-hmm. You know, I know this is a radical approach in some ways to rethinking about how we should be looking at the phenomenon, but. It's difficult, you know, for us who are so curious at times, and I'm as curious as anybody, saying, nah, you know what, let's just speed ahead and figure out what's going on by uncovering these horrible memories that were actually intended to actually be uh, protect them, you know. The reason why I had some of the conscious memories I did in that little echo of me screaming but with no sense of pain was because it was a warning. And I said, Jim, you know what, it, we really, really don't want you to remember some of these experiences because they're going to be difficult to remember. And, and they're not going to be good for you. You know, we don't think it's going to be good in the long run for you. And um, we're really trying to protect you. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, we just don't see it in that light, right? It's not in our, I don't know, maybe it's not in our psychic makeup or whatever, but um, I'm just got stubborn, you know, and I said I'm going to yeah. charge forward. I'm glad I did, but I wouldn't recommend it for everybody. You know, I mm-hmm. think that we have to maybe construct a new approach to dealing with the phenomenon and in, in fact, maybe opening up a way that we can communicate better with these beings. Because if we're looking at a relationship right now, we'll call it strained at best. But we, I think we need to put things in place that we can help educate those who haven't had encounters yet, but might or will. And essentially educate everybody as to what we know is happening, what's going on, and maybe even develop our programs and systems and educational programs that could actually help people cope with such experiences in the future so they won't be negatively affected by them. Well, and you had mentioned communicating better, and that would probably be be a question that others would have is, why do they need to do their work in in such a clandestine manner? (laughs) Why wouldn't they just be able to talk to us? Or like you said, why didn't they just come open the door? Yeah, it seems that... um, they are well. It's it's complicated, but I'm trying to. I'll do my best to explain it. Number one, they are so different than us that they have concluded that a direct contact with us would not be in the best interest for either party, and particularly, I believe it would be harmful to us. I don't know why that is, but that's what they've concluded. Secondly, that they're not interested in every single human being. They are. They believe that they can have a better relationship with particular human beings so that they are drawn towards individuals rather than mass groups. In other words, they, they, they have a propensity to seek out individuals rather than seek out government organizations or any particular organization. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just the way it is. 
the other part of the reason why I believe is because humanity has to engage itself in finding its own path. They don't really want to be perceived as the saviors. You know, they want humanity to save humanity. They they think that if humanity needs and they're going to have a relationship with us in the future, humanity has to grow up. And uh, part of that growing up means that we have to feel that we can stand on our own two feet. Mm-hmm. And because we're don't... about to destroy ourselves? I mean, is that what they feel? Yeah, I think that's their sense. They sense that a really very, very difficult time is coming in the very near future within my lifetime, uh, within probably the lifetime of all the listeners that are out there. And that's what their sense is. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they're being very clandestine. You know, they're trying to work in the background. Um, we'll know what they're doing a little bit more in the future, but uh, I think that's that's the reason why they've approached it the way they have. And they're giving mm-hmm. us time to, I, I'd say, come to terms with the fact that they exist. Uh, we're frustrated because we got so many different ideas about it, and we don't seem to have good information on it, and we're really struggling in that process. But I think it's just all a process. You know, we'll, we'll get to it one day. But uh, you know, we we just need to persevere. I believe. In what in your book, one of the questions that uh, it says you tackle is how the government is responding to all of this, yeah. and what do you believe they they really know, uh, and and how would you have put that answer in a nutshell? <laughs> well, you know what, um, it's it's a simple question, but it's difficult to answer in the sense that much of the government doesn't know anything about it. And when we mention government, government is a complex organization. I, I work both with uh, federal, state, uh, provincial, municipal governments most of my life. Uh, and, and it comes with the kind of business that I do, both in emergency planning and, and disaster planning and uh, just health and safety programs in general as well. And what I've seen is that you know, government, some government agencies don't talk to other government agencies. And in this case, the elected officials are often out of the loop. They don't know what's going on with the UFO phenomena. Some parts of the military obviously do. Um, and which militaries know more? Everybody looks towards the U.S. as probably being the, the, the military power of the world that knows more about the UFO phenomena than anybody. And there's been some suggestions that anybody that's been involved with NASA over the years may have a better understanding about the presence of the extraterrestrials. I'd have to conclude they're probably right on that one as well. I mean, we just have to look at some of the statements that have come back from some of the astronauts. So what does that really mean? It means that our elected officials are really reluctant currently to step forward and tackle a UFO problem and UFO issue. Uh, It's not going to get them any additional votes or put them into power. You know, maybe I should say it's going to give them some additional votes, but it's going to lose them more than they're going to gain. And uh, when they're after credibility in the election process, it's very difficult for them to, to jump on that particular bandwagon. Mm-hmm. So where does that leave us? Well, that leaves us, I believe, when we look at Arizona, for example, and, and the issues that happened with the governor when they had this mass UFO sighting, there's a lot to learn from that process. And what we find is a state government that has been let down by the federal government that has found itself on its own dealing with the UFO phenomenon without any external force coming forward and it's and providing them some kind of assistance in how do I engage the public in a responsible way to deal with a situation that I have not been briefed on that there's no precedence for and that I'm frankly only understand that my role is to ensure that the public doesn't panic. 
And when you put all of those factors together, you get somebody who, who walks out in a in a space alien costume and, and they all make fun of it and let's get on with it, guys. You know, that's it. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there's a much better way to approach it. I know there's a much better way to approach it because we have a lot of research, scientific work that's been done with everything from dirty bombs going off to biological weapons. We know how to address the public in difficult situations. We know how to address the public and how it should be done uh, in, uh, to avoid panic. And in fact, we know by all research that's been done that panic is absolutely um, not going to happen, particularly when, it's provi- when information is provided by the government in a very candid way. You know, and that's when we have over, if you go to the UK, over 80% of the population in the UK believes that extraterrestrials are already here visiting Earth. Well, they're not panicking. You know, so if 80% of the population already believes the UFO phenomenon is real, how come there's no panic? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, and if you go to the North America, you can argue in different, you know, whether it's 51% or 50% or 60%. Anyway, a good portion of the population already believes the phenomenon is present, yeah. and there's no panic. So we have to, I think, move the governments past this idea of panic, but show them a way of, of encouraging, I guess, they're going to have to build trust. It's going to be a difficult road for them to hope. Mm-hmm. But at now, some point in time, they're going to have to deal with it. Yeah. We're running out of time, but I do want to ask, um, you were taken on board and medical procedures were done or, or like you said, yeah. um, changes of some sort. Mm-hmm. How do you think that these changes made to you, what do you feel is the nature of them and how will they help uh, humanity? I think that uh, when I look at myself from where I was back in 1987 to where I am now, I'd have to say, you know, I'm much more at peace in my life than I've ever been previously. I'm not sure if that was them or something, but I, I believe what we're looking at is, and from their perspective, is that humanity has an imbalance, and that imbalance is created from their swelling technological development and our retarded spiritual growth. And that imbalance is going to create a major problem for the future. So the only way to correct this imbalance is to ensure that that spiritual development at least matches our technological development. In other words, it improves. So I believe there's something that they're doing that's that's going to encourage a radical spiritual shift in a great segment of the population at a specific time. I just don't know when that time is going to be or how it's going to occur or how dramatic that is going to be. But if we need to put resources, that would be something that we really should be looking into. Mm-hmm. And then finally, now that, you know, being a professional uh, and an administrator in an important field where you deal with governments and everything, mm-hmm. have you gotten uh, any negative feedback? What's the, how are people reacting in your your colleagues and everything, and and family to uh, you coming out and writing your book and everything. Well, you know, I, I I talked to my family about it before I went and wrote the books and made sure everybody was going to be kosher with what I was going to be doing. I explained to them that there were going to be some risks in it, and that, but I felt that it was important for me to take those risks, um, and they concurred with it. You know, the biggest person in my life is, is my family and my wife, and I just didn't want to make. You know what she said to me? She said. Jim, I just don't want anybody to hurt you, you know, because mm-hmm. you're a good person. And I just, I couldn't stand by and see that happen. She goes, I just don't want that to happen. She goes, I know you can take care of yourself, but I, that's the thing that would bother her the most. 
But once she got over that, you know, and she realized how important it was for me, um, she was okay with it. And since that period of time, you know, we've had more support than we've ever had negative comments. I mean, for the odd, for every one negative comment I get, I must get, you know, 50s, 50 kudos or, or, you know, 50 situations where people are just interested to know more. Uh, they want to know how I got involved with this. Uh, what do I know about it? What am I, you know, what am I doing in this area? And and I think that has been the most remarkable aspect to all of this, you know, mm-hmm. just how supportive people really have been about uh, about the work that I've been doing. Well, that's great. You know, I'm I'm an an optimist, of course. I I uh, but it's always difficult with all the information going around. So the scenario you present here is certainly something that uh, I hope to be the case. Um, yeah. And it has been a great talking to you. And of course. I think we could easily go on another hour, two, three, four, or five. So uh, we'll definitely have to have you on again sometime. But thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Well, thank you so much for having me on. And uh, I think this is one of these wonderful opportunities that has been presented itself to humanity. I think we were, we were born into an incredible age, and I, I really don't want us to mess up this opportunity. And I, I think we're going to be able to make it. I really yeah. do. Well, and but thank I, you again. Yeah, I figure... You know, people like you and being open to that there is an interaction occurring, I think, makes us lucky. And uh, to be able yeah. to just recognize that we're in an important period of, of uh, humanity's future or history. Yes. You know, we're at the cutting edge. You know, we, we, we should expect it to be difficult. We should mm-hmm. expect this to be a very, very difficult time. It's not going to be easy. But I really do believe we have courageous people like yourself and like a number of other people that I've met that I just didn't even I wasn't even aware of earlier that I think we're going to be able to make it. I think we are going to be able to pull this off and I, I really do. I I'm I'm an eternal optimist. Yeah. And uh, I think that's going to happen. Well, Alberta UFO Study Group is uh your group and uh, which is aufosg.com and that's where people it looks like can get your books and find out more about you. Absolutely. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you again, and keep up the great work. So, we're going to make it, people. Jim is is optimistic, and I hope he's right that we're going to make it. Of course, uh, every day we struggle and struggle, and things look kind of rough. But, of course, that's if you watch the news, because the news is so negative and awful and... uh, uh, looking at the bad side, but hopefully he's right. Hopefully, uh, you know, things are better off than uh, sometimes they, they look to be. And I know there are probably some of you out there that, uh, well, there's always that's the case. Some people who don't agree with what he has to say, some who do. Um, but uh, regardless, you know, I think it's really interesting to hear these stories, especially from someone like him who's a professional who works around um you know, different professors and things like that. Uh, And uh, to be bold enough to put his uh, career at stake, really, even to come out and talk about uh, this stuff uh, is really interesting. And, of course, uh, why would someone do that if they didn't really believe what they had experienced was, was real? So a pretty incredible experience that he outlined there. And I think some people out there who are listening probably feel they may have had a similar experience. So like you heard him say, 
His website is AUFOSG, some of our good buddies up there in Canada. I've always found people in Canada to be very friendly. Uh, his uh, organization is the Alberta UFO Study Group. And talking about friendly good people from other countries, I do want to say I love the UK. I was kidding around with the July 4th stuff. Somebody, a British person said, why are you making fun of people in the UK? I was making fun of, you know, why we blow stuff up on July 4th and, and maybe it was so we could scare away the British and not, you know, so they don't come back. It was a, I was just kidding. I love my British listeners as well as my Canadian listeners. I get excited to talk to you just like I'm excited to talk to all of our speakers. Uh, anyway, but what I was getting at, this book by Jim Maroney, UFOs and Aliens, it's not just by him. There are lots of people who wrote in there. Eric Von Daniken, um, Nick Pope wrote in there, Stanton Friedman, like I had mentioned, um, and many others. It's, it's, I haven't read it or gotten a copy yet, but I've heard some really good things, and Jim Maroney actually wrote in this uh, book as well. So it looks really interesting, and he also has... The Extraterrestrial Answer book, which he wrote, which only just came out last year. So if you want to hear more about Jim's experiences and what he feels is going on uh, with this abduction stuff, uh, then check out his book. And uh, it certainly sounds very positive, and I, and I hope it to be the case. Otherwise, for the rest of you, friends, I'm not quite sure uh, who I'm going to have on next week yet. I'm pretty sure, but I've got to confirm that next week. Anyways, you can be sure it's going to be an awesome dude. Check out our Open Minds TV Twitter, my Paranormal RPTR, Paranormal RPTR, Paranormal Reporter. Uh, you can go on Twitter and just Google my name, Alejandro Rojas, to find that as well. Or follow us on Facebook. And remember, if you're trying to join the UFO Think Tank Facebook, it's full. You can only have 5,000 friends. We've got 5,000. We've got another 1,000 in queue, and people are trying to come onto that group or onto that every day. But we do have our Open Minds uh, group or, or page as well on Facebook. So go like that and go check that out because we are updating that all the time. So thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you next week.